0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: It was an unholy alliance between Democrats and MAGA to unseat a principled Republican. The lead starts right now. Voters sending a resounding message to Republicans about abortion rights in ruby red Kansas, while in other states, Trump-backed election deniers sail to primary victories, setting up key showdowns for the fall. It was a consequential night, and we will explain it all. Then, the truth has never stopped Alex Jones from his devious grift, but now the conspiracy theorist and radio host has been caught lying on the stand about Sandy Hook. The shocking news today in court on how Alex Jones' own lawyers accidentally helped illuminate what a liar he is. Plus, it can make the difference if you're trying to buy a car or a house. The stunning report that Equifax erroneously issued millions of Americans lower credit scores that they did not deserve. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. We're gonna start today with our politics lead a report card and a reality check for both Republicans and Democrats gearing up for this fall's midterm elections. The biggest takeaways from another primary night are now coming into focus, starting in Kansas, where abortion rights were on the ballot for the first time since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Voters in Kansas overwhelmingly rejected a measure that would have allowed lawmakers to ban abortion in the state. And the turnout is giving Democrats new hope, they say, That anger at that decision by the high court could deliver a midterm boost. On to Arizona now, where Republican election deniers won big last night. CNN CNN now projecting that three Trump-endorsed Republicans who embrace Donald Trump's sad election lies will win their party's nominations for U.S. Senate, for Attorney General, for Secretary of State. Right now, election denying Carrie Lake, who's running for governor, is ahead in that primary, though those votes are still being counted. In Michigan, Republican Congressman Peter Meyer became the second House Republican who voted to impeach Donald Trump to lose his primary race to an election liar. But notable in his race was the Democratic meddling. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee spent more than $300,000 to boost Meyer's opponent, conspiracy theorist John Gibbs, in hopes that Gibbs, endorsed by Trump, will be easier to defeat in November. The move was criticized by even some Democrats as so cynical because it undermines Democrats' claims that these election liars pose an existential threat to the Republic. CNN's Jeff Zalini starts off our coverage today from Overland Park, Kansas, with more on how the latest primary results
2: could have national implications come November. A surge of Kansas voters sending an overwhelming message to protect abortion rights. Did it! it was the biggest sign yet of the backlash to the Supreme Court's decision to send the question of abortion back to the states. And here in conservative Kansas, voters delivered their answer loud and clear. The abortion measure drew historic turnout for an August election, with more than 900,000 voters casting ballots, dramatically outpacing primaries in 2018 and 2020.
3: You cannot take people's rights away and expect there not to be uh, uh, some kind of engagement, some kind of activism, and, uh, and we saw that. We saw that yesterday in a way that I don't think anybody uh, expected.
2: It was a question of whether voters wanted to amend the Kansas Constitution to allow lawmakers to further restrict or ban abortion. A resounding 59 percent said no, 41 percent said yes, with a coalition of some independents and Republicans joining forces to preserve access to abortion three months before the fall elections, the outcome in Kansas reverberated across the political landscape, with Democrats expressing fresh hope that support for abortion rights could be a motivating force in November. Across the country on Tuesday, more pieces of the midterm election puzzle fell into place, with supporters of former President Donald Trump, who have embraced his false claims about the 2020 election, scoring wins at the ballot box. In Arizona, Trump backed Kerry Lake leading in a divisive Republican governor's race over Karen Taylor Robeson, who had the support of former Vice President Mike Pence. We
4: won this race.
2: We Arizona has been a hotbed of denialism about Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 election, with Mark Fincham winning the Republican nomination for Secretary of State, the top election Thank official you, in Arizona. Arizona has sent a message. LOUD AND CLEAR. BLAKE MASTERS WRITING HIS TRUMP ENDORSEMENT TO BECOMING THE PARTY'S SENATE NOMINEE, SETTING UP ONE OF THE NATION'S MOST CLOSELY WATCHED SENATE CONTESTS AGAINST DEMOCRATIC SENATOR MARK KELLY. IN MICHIGAN, CONSERVATIVE COMMENTATOR TUDOR Dixon BECOMING THE REPUBLICAN NOMINEE TO CHALLENGE DEMOCRATIC GOVERNOR GRETCHEN WHITMER.
5: FRANKLY, MICHIGAN, WE DESERVE BETTER.
2: Congressman Peter Meyer, one of 10 Republicans voting to impeach President Trump, losing his primary to John Gibbs, a fervent election denier whose candidacy was boosted by Democrats with hundreds of thousands of dollars in TV ads.
6: You guys ready to take this country back? Yeah!
2: And in Missouri, Attorney General Eric Schmidt easily winning the Republican Senate contest, blocking a political comeback from former Governor Eric Greitens, who resigned four years ago amid a sex scandal.
0: God has a plan. It doesn't always work on our timeline.
2: Now, the surge of supporters coming together to support abortion rights here in Kansas, independents, Democrats, libertarians, even some Republicans is certainly causing alarm among Republican strategists across the country watching this race here. Now, they still believe the midterm elections will turn on the economy and other issues. But Jake, this simply adds a new question into the equation. Has that Supreme Court decision simply upended the narrative of this campaign? It's something we won't know until, of course, the uh, November election. But Michigan also has abortion rights on the ballot, a constitutional amendment there. So this outcome in Kansas yesterday is going to stay with this rest of the campaign for the next three months, Jake. All
1: right, Jeff Zeleny in Kansas for us. Thanks so much. Let's discuss now with Ron Brownstein, senior editor of The Atlantic, and Laura Baron lopez White House correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. So, Ron... um, I don't know how to interpret the Kansas results. Take a listen to how Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer interpreted it.
7: What happened in Red Kansas last night is a reflection of what is happening across the country and what will continue to occur through the November elections.
1: Am I wrong for wondering if all these Kansans, especially Mm. Kansas women, privately going to vote to keep the government out of their bodies, in their view, presumably? will necessarily translate to all of them voting for Democratic office holders. Right. I mean, look, this was a pure referendum solely on this one issue. Right. When
8: you get to November, it won't be. People will be voting on many issues, and that's what Republicans say. But you can't ignore the turnout, and you can't ignore the result in the big counties. Johnson County, where Jeff was, uh, suburbs of Kansas City, is kind of the prototype of the northern, well-educated suburb that has moved from Republican to Democrat over the last generation, particularly in the Trump era. 68% voted for the pro-choice position uh, in that county, and the turnout was enormous. And I think what, what that signals is that this Republican Party, in the image of Trump, with candidates like Tudor Dixon in, in Michigan who are talking about banning abortion in all cases except the life of the mother, said a 14-year-old you know, victim of incest should carry it to, uh, to term, carry a baby to term... That Republican Party still has trouble in white-collar suburbs, whether it's Oakland County in Michigan or the suburbs of Philadelphia or the suburbs of Atlanta. And that probably is the Democrats' best chance to avoid the worst in November.
1: Uh, And then uh, Republicans don't necessarily know how to interpret this. Uh, They don't seem eager to talk about it. Uh, Take a listen uh, to Republican Senator Roy Blunt from neighboring Missouri talking to CNN's Manu Raju earlier today.
6: I think the best place to solve these, to deal with these issues at the state level, and if that's what Kansans want to do, that would fall within my longtime held view that the states are the best position to deal with these kinds but of you issues. Keeping will
9: energize Democrats, this issue, after last night's... I don't know.
1: What do you think? Should Republicans be worried?
10: I think that there is certainly data points to suggest that some of this, this energy that occurred in Kansas last night, can happen in other states. One data point that a Democratic data firm put out after the results was that 70% of the Kansans that registered to vote after the June 24th Dobbs decision were women. Mm. So is that happening in other states? If we look at more of the registration data, that Dobbs could potentially be this watermark, uh, and that after that, more and more are motivated to vote. Also, um, I know that there were other reports that progressives and young students who were go to college there saw the decision to have this vote in August as an attempt to try to, you know, go around the fact that students are sometimes out of state during this time. And so they felt motivated and students were organizing in droves in Kansas to try to uh, defeat this ballot initiative. Very
1: interesting. Let's turn uh, to uh, Michigan, where Republican Congressman Ooh. Peter Meyer, who voted to impeach Trump, he was one of only 10 Republicans in the House to do so. He lost his primary to a conspiracy theorist MAGA guy named John Gibbs. He's an election liar. Um, and, the, you know, the big story is that the Democrats, the DCCC, mm-hmm. basically made John Gibbs campaign. I mean, they gave him $300,000, the DCCC, and other Democrats gave more. Um, now look, it's the Republican voters it was who the picked, Republican him. Voters yeah. picked him. Republican
8: voters, yeah, right. In the end, I mean, it, it's it's look. This is this is a tough one uh, because first of all, this strategy, by and large, in the past has been somewhat successful. You know, whether it's right. uh, Harry Reid in, in twenty ten or uh, Claire McCaskill in twenty twelve. I mean, the the, the the opponent you get can matter, and it is also true that Meyer, if he was elected, if he was reelected, would vote to make Kevin McCarthy the speaker, who would probably have a committee you know, investigating Hunter Biden and doing other things that uh, might undermine democracy. So it's not as though it is, it is for Democrats it's a black and white choice. But but for someone who voted to impeach Trump and stood for that, I mean, it, it's pushing this about as far as, as, as I think you can.
1: Well, I think what it does is it makes it seem as though, you know, Democrats are saying these election liars pose an existential threat yeah. to American democracy. And I agree with them. They do empirically. They do. Um, but it, but if that's the case, if it's an existential threat, why are you risking, in a potentially red wave year, electing one of these guys?
10: Well, that's the argument that a number of Democrats yeah. made. They said that this is hypocritical if we're on one hand holding these January 6 hearings, warning about the threats that election deniers pose, and then fu- you know putting out an ad campaign that essentially boosts the Trump-aligned candidate. I do agree with Ron, though, that essentially at the end of the day, you know, s- of Republican voters think that the election was stolen. And so that is why that they are voting for election deniers. You
8: know, Michigan and Arizona, after yesterday, the entire top of the ticket in both states for the Republican Party are going to be election deniers. The secretary of state, attorney general and governor in Michigan, the attorney general, secretary of state, governor and senator in Arizona. I mean, this is bigger than Trump right i mean this has kind of uh, taken root in the party uh, in a way that goes way beyond him and it is going to be challenging because in a red wave year as laura is saying some of these candidates are likely to get elected and the level of chaos that's going to bring to 2024 i don't think we were really
1: prepared for yeah i mean the level of chaos that's going to bring to the united states and our democracy is going to yeah. be insane all right thanks so much both to both of you getting close to the inner circle subpoena's in the federal probe into january 6 have been issued by the justice department to the two highest ranking members of the Trump administration so far. Then, at any moment, a jury could start to decide the cost of a lie. How much will Alex Jones be forced to pay for lying and in some ways organizing the torture of the Sandy Hook massacre victims? We're back now with some sad breaking news. Republican Congresswoman Jackie Walorski of Indiana has been killed in a car crash. House Republican Leader Kevin McCarthy just shared a statement from the Congresswoman's office confirming that the Congresswoman's husband was notified that she was killed in a car accident in Indiana this afternoon. The statement goes on to say, quote, She has returned home to be with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please keep her family in your thoughts and prayers, unquote. Walorski was born and raised in South Bend, an area that she has represented since first being elected to Congress in 2012. May her memory be a blessing. Also in our politics lead, former Trump Deputy White House Counsel Patrick Philman has now been subpoenaed in the federal criminal probe of the January 6th insurrection, two sources tell CNN. This comes just a day after we learned his former boss, Trump White House Counsel Pat Cipollone, was also subpoenaed for documents and testimony by the Justice Department. These moves are the clearest signal yet that federal investigators are looking at conduct directly related to Donald Trump and his closest allies' efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports for us now, executive privilege concerns could prove to be a complication for prosecutors.
4: The Justice Department escalating its investigation into January 6th, with CNN learning of two new key subpoenas to the former White House counsel and his deputy. Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin are the highest-ranking White House officials to be subpoenaed so far.
11: This is probably bad for former President Trump.
4: Prosecutors are already deep into their investigation of plans from Trump allies to overturn the 2020 election. Two top aides to Vice President Pence appeared before a grand jury last month. Subpoenas have already been served to several people who scheme to create fake slates of electors, saying Trump won the 2020 election in several swing states and earlier this summer, FBI agents seized lawyer John Eastman's phone and raided Jeffrey Clark's home. Can I call
11: my lawyer? It shows that this is more than, you know, what did John Eastman do, the uh, attorney that basically came up with that crazy scheme to overturn the election, Uh, and it probably is a very deep interest in what the president did.
4: Cipollone's subpoena is significant because he was close to the president and in the West Wing on January 6th.
6: I think I was pretty clear there needed to be an immediate and forceful response statement, public statement, that people need to leave the Capitol.
4: Cipollone sat for several hours of a closed-door deposition with the January 6th Select Committee, careful not to divulge any conversations directly with Trump. Former prosecutor Ellie Honig says those executive privilege concerns could prove to be a hurdle for Justice Department prosecutors.
8: Donald Trump might try to step in and claim executive privilege in front of a grand jury. You can claim executive privilege. But there's a difference between claiming executive privilege and actually winning on executive privilege. This is actually exactly what happened in the Richard Nixon
4: tapes case back in 1974. Nixon's tapes were ultimately ordered released by the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the January 6th committee blindsided by revelations of more missing text messages from government phones. CNN has learned the Defense Department wiped the phones of top departing Defense Department and Army officials at the end end of the Trump administration, deleting any text that might have existed from key witnesses to the response to the Capitol attack.
5: Was the January 6th Select Committee aware of these deleted Defense Department records prior to today? I do not believe so. I was not, Um, which is another concerning matter that this was not disclosed to us by the Department of
4: Defense. the senate judiciary committee dick durbin he's calling on the pentagon's inspector general to investigate these missing texts from the senior officials at the defense department the pentagon has responded saying that they are aware of the request but jake they're still waiting to get an official official ask here from senator durbin all right
1: jessica schneider thanks so much let's bring in former u.s attorney and cnn senior legal analyst pre barara pre thanks for being here so um adam kinzinger a member of the committee says the subpoena of uh, Cipollone is, quote, probably bad for Donald Trump. <laughs> um, what do the Cipollone and Philbin subpoenas signal to you about where the Justice Department is in this investigation?
12: Well, it signals, I think, very, very clearly and loudly that the Justice Department is doing the kinds of things that lots of folks have wondered, you know, the, the, why were they not doing those things? Certainly those depositions uh, spurred the, 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 the Justice Department along we now know that they are interviewing people, calling them into the grand jury uh, at, at a very high level. They're, they're not actually going after low-level people and working their way up as far as the grand jury practice goes. From what the reporting has been, they brought into the grand jury, we understand from reporting, uh, two top officials to Vice President Mike Pence, and now the two top officials at the, at the White House Counsel's office. It means that they're very serious. It means, that, as you said in the opening— that they're focusing on conduct by donald trump himself maybe there's also an interest in looking at conduct on the part of other lawyers and people who were staffing donald trump like john eastman but you don't call in the white house counsel, the deputy white house counsel, particularly in the wake of the testimony they gave to the 1-6 committee unless you're looking squarely and directly at donald trump
1: is there testimony that uh cipollone or, or philbin uh would give to a grand jury that they would that they were not willing to give to the january 6 committee we saw yeah. Cipollone, or we were told he invoked executive privilege many times, and we saw in the video um, his reluctance to describe any specific conversations with Donald Trump. Can the grand jury force him to?
12: Not in the connection with the, the testimony that he'll give in real time. I think there's two things perhaps that, that, that's going on. One is it's possible that the Justice Department, through Cipollone and the other uh, lawyers, counsel, can convince them, that their claim of executive privilege or other kind of privilege is too broad and and try to, uh, having looked at the testimony that he gave before the January 6th committee, winnow it down a little bit uh, if they're reasonable people and reasonably negotiate. And then the second thing is more likely uh, that Cipollone and others will will assert the same executive and other privileges, but it'll be teed up in a little bit of a a more direct way for the Justice Department, and then the Justice Department will, will have to fight it out in court. And it's a very different thing to fight between the Justice Department and a witness uh, versus the January 6th committee and a witness as we've seen before.
1: The, um, we, we've heard in last week and the week before about U.S. Secret Service agent uh, text messages being wiped and disappearing uh, from January 5th and January 6th. We heard the similar thing for the texts of two top officials at the Department of Homeland Security under Trump, Chad Wolf and Ken Cuccinelli. Now we hear that this also happened at, at the Pentagon um, from key witnesses at the Pentagon to events surrounding January 6th. Take a listen to what former Trump Defense Secretary Mark Esper, who had already left the administration at that point, uh, told CNN earlier today about this.
11: I think it needs to be looked into, but I think what we'll find is that um, this was just a circumstance of people leaving government two weeks or so after January 6th and their phones being wiped and cleared for the next person to take them.
1: Do you buy that?
12: Look, I think it's possible. I, you know, I've been trained to keep an open mind and wait for conclusions to be drawn after an investigation has been done. And clearly, I think there's a lot of interest, uh, hopefully bipartisan interest, in making sure that an investigation is done and find out the answers to why it is, as you point out, that three different government agencies had their phones wiped. And it's particularly peculiar in the circumstances that we're talking about. When big events happen, government officials become aware that, that there will be future testimony that will be sought about okay. those issues. Con- Don't delete anything. I was, the, I was the United States attorney, and there were certain times when certain things were going on, you were very, very particular and careful because there's going to be an inquiry. Uh, and, and here, based on what happened on January 6th, there were going to be multiple inquiries, and everybody knew it. And the tech people knew it, and the, the individual agents knew it, and their supervisors knew it, and the inspector general should have known it. So for that to have happened... In the wake of everyone having clear, direct knowledge that there's going to be a lot of interest in this by the American people and by courts and potentially by prosecutors, it's unforgivable whether it was deliberate or not. We'll have to wait and see.
1: So far, the Justice Department is not getting involved in any investigation into the missing Secret Service text messages, which to me at least seem the fishiest of all of them. Um, Garland said that's only going to happen in investigation if there are criminal allegations. Do you agree with that?
12: I don't know all the information they have. Um, it, it seems to me, given the confluence of events, that there's enough smoke to warrant an investigation. I don't, I don't want to second guess Merrick Garland. But you know maybe it's the case that, that uh, as more of these revelations come to light, if you have a fourth agency, a fifth agency, I guess on, on one hand you could say you could argue, I guess, that that means uh, it, it wasn't a conspiracy. It wasn't intentional. It just was something that the government did in every single agency. On the other hand, as, as I discussed with you a second ago, sure fishy, given how important these text messages were going to be and how directly they could bear on the state of mind of Donald Trump, which is the central question at issue in the country.
1: It sure is fishy. Priya Perara, thanks so much. Appreciate it. We've got more breaking news. The NFL just made an announcement about Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson's six-game suspension. Stick around. Just in on our sports lead, the NFL says that it will appeal the six-game suspension handed down to Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson after a judge found that he had violated the league's personal conduct policy in his myriad private meetings with massage therapists, which resulted in many accusations against him. CNN's Don Riddell joins me live. Don, does the NFL want a tougher punishment or a more lenient one for Deshaun Watson?
13: tougher, Jake. They had originally uh, asked uh, that he was suspended for a year. Uh, The judge, the female judge, Sue Robinson, that was appointed jointly by the NFL and the NFLPA, concluded in her 16-page report uh, that he would only be uh, suspended for six games. Uh, And she responded uh, to the criticism that she received, basically saying that uh, the penalty and the punishment that the NFL was asking for was far more Uh, than what other players who've been charged with uh, similar allegations uh, have received. Um, So it's going to be very interesting to see where it goes now, because the appeal will be heard by the commissioner, Roger Goodell himself. And the NFL has asked for a lot more than the six games that were handed down. Um, This remains an absolutely fascinating case, playing out just one month before the uh, new NFL season Uh, kicks off. Deshaun Watson is one of the biggest stars in the game. He's one of the highest paid. His $230 million contract was the highest contract in terms of guaranteed money in the history of the NFL. Another controversial aspect of the six-game suspension and penalty was that he wouldn't lose uh, a cent from it. His team, the Cleveland Browns, uh, rearranged Uh, His contract so that whilst he wouldn't be paid during the six games, he would still get every penny in the years after the suspension had ended. But of course, now we don't know exactly uh, where this is going to lead. But this is an absolutely huge story uh, in American sports.
1: That's right. 24 women have leveled accusations of sexual misconduct and more against him. Don Riddell, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, right wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones is about to find out the price of a lie. That's next.
6: It's 100% real, as I said on the radio yesterday. And as I said here yesterday, uh, it's 100% real.
1: And our national lead, Sandy Hook, happened. It's 100% real. That's the admission Alex Jones made on the stand today. But does he mean it? The trial for the far-right conspiracy theorist and radio host will determine how much Jones owes for defaming the parents of a six-year-old who was among the 20 children killed in the Newtown, Connecticut school shooting. Jones's lies about the victims of Sandy Hook and their families led to years of harassment by his deranged fans. Some of the parents even had to change their addresses. We should note Alex Jones is a full-fledged member of Team MAGA. Trump went on his show when running for president in 2015. Jones was part of the January 6th insanity. CNN's Miguel Marquez was tracking the developments in the courtroom today where the jury could begin
6: deliberating at any moment. Conspiracist Alex Jones facing reality, questioned by the lawyer representing parents of six-year-old Sandy Hook victim, Jesse Lewis.
14: You and your company want the world to believe that this judge is rigging this court proceeding to make sure that a script, a literal script,
15: is being followed. That's what you want the world to believe, right? Right. Aren't I
6: barred from talking about this? I'm asking you the question, Mr. Jones.
15: Answer the
16: way the court works is you answer a question until there's an objection.
6: Jones struggling to answer without being contradicted by either his own words or those being said by others on his behalf. Just last Friday, Robert Barnes filled in for Jones on his Infowar show. So that's why the judge is
14: rigging the court proceeding to make
6: sure that the script, and this is literally a script, a script gets told in a certain way for future audiences. Jones's cross-examination follows withering testimony from Scarlett Lewis, Jesse's mother. She faced down Jones, the man who told and fanned lies that the mass murder at Sandy Hook never happened, her son Jesse never existed, and his mother merely an actress
17: to have someone on top of that perpetuate a lie, a lie, that it was a hoax, that it didn't happen, that it was a false flag, that I'm an actress, and you get on and you say, oh sorry, but I know actresses when I see them. Do you think I'm an actress?
6: No, I don't think
17: you're not. No, you can't talk right now.
6: Jones under pressure found liable in 3 separate defamation lawsuits brought by the families of 10 victims of the Sandy Hook massacre. The jury for this case determining how much Jones must pay for his lies. Sandy Hook is a synthetic, completely fake with actors In my view, manufacturer. The parents' lawyer establishing Jones made hundreds of millions of dollars over several years based on text messages from his phone, evidence Jones didn't realize they had, catching him in another lie.
14: Twelve days ago, your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years and when informed did not take any steps to identify it as privileged or protected in any way. And as of two days ago, it fell free and clear into my possession. And that is how I know you lied to me
8: when you said you didn't have text messages about Sandy Hook. Did you know that?
6: I See, I told you the truth. This is your Perry Mason moment. I gave them my phone. Jones testified earlier in a deposition that he searched the text messages on his phone for the term Sandy Hook, and it came back with okay. no hits.
18: And I had several
6: several different phones with this number, but I did, yeah. Well, of course. I mean, that's why you got it.
13: No, Mr. Jones. That's not why I have My lawyer sent it to you,
6: but I'm hiding it. Okay. Mr. Jones? Mr. Please Jones, please I... Just
16: answer questions.
6: Jones's defense on his show, he's only asking questions, and the mainstream media is taking everything he says out of context. Now, the family of Jesse Lewis are asking for up to $150 million in damages. The uh, defense lawyers for Mr. Jones are doing their closing arguments right now. We expect the jury may have this case any time this afternoon, and then it'll be in their hands to decide what he's liable for. Jake?
1: Miguel, if the jury decides to award a large amount of money to the family, what's the chance that the parents will actually see the money?
6: That is already a growing question, not only this family, but others. Remember, there are three different defamation cases that he has now been held a liable for or he's liable in. And the families are concerned that he's using bankruptcy laws to hide tens of millions of dollars uh, that he in profits in order to keep that from liability in these cases. So I think we're going to see a lot more litigation and, and many more lies ahead. Jake. All right, Miguel Marquez, thank you so much for that report. For more about Alex Jones and Infowars,
1: be sure to tune in to CNN this Friday. The CNN special report, Megaphone for Conspiracy, will air at 11 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Coming up, the huge mistake that may have cost millions of Americans homes and cars and lots of money. That's next. Our money lead now. Today is the 50th day in a row that gas prices have fallen in the United States. The drop is driven by the fact that so many Americans cut back on driving due to soaring fuel costs and recession fears, which have knocked down oil prices. CNN's Pete Muntean joins us now live from a gas station in D.C. Pete, where do prices stand now? How much further do you think they're going to fall?
14: Well, Jake, you know, most gas stations in the U.S. right now are selling gas below $4 a gallon. It is $3.99 here at the Citgo station in Northeast D.C., which is actually below the national average, according to AAA, for a gallon of regular $4.16 is what it went to just overnight. That is down almost $0.90 from the peak we saw back on June 14th when gas price hit its highest ever record, $5.02. We've gone down 65 cents in the last month. It was 481 only a month ago. Multiple reasons, according to petroleum experts. Not only are there fears of a global recession, even though we're not officially in one, but that is also causing gas pri- oil prices to go down, and gas demand has also gone, gone down since those prices hit that $5 a gallon record. I want you to listen now to Patrick DeHaan of Gas Buddy. He says gas prices rise like a rocket and drop like a feather. They're dropping slower than what we saw when Russia invaded Ukraine, when gas prices really went up in a big way, now that gas stations are trying to recoup their losses from the massive increases. Listen now.
19: We're not talking about stations making money hand over fist, but... They are passing along the lower prices slower to recoup the margin to sustain their business uh,
6: from when prices went up and they were caught on the wrong side of things.
14: The next milestone we will see one gas prices hit three dollars and ninety-nine cents on average for a gallon of regular. Patrick Tajan of Gas Buddy says we could see that in the next couple of weeks. The other milestone, another big question, is whether or not we'll see gas prices like we saw during the peak of the pandemic in the $2 a gallon range. Patrick DeHaan of GasBuddy says not likely. What we're seeing right now, even though this trend could continue, is likely the new normal.
1: Jake. All right, Piedmontine, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We're following another major economic story today. Credit giant Equifax issued wrong credit scores for millions of Americans, and that likely resulted in consumers paying higher interest rates, or being denied loans altogether. Let's bring in CNN Business Reporter Rahel Solomon. Rahel, how did this even happen?
5: Well, Jake, Equifax says it was a coding issue, a glitch that led to a a miscalculation of credit scores, not the actual report, but credit scores. And it happened over a three-week period, uh, likely mid-March to early April, according to some reporting from The Wall Street Journal. And millions were impacted, Jake, but the company's saying that only 300,000 actually saw an incorrect credit score of more than 25 points. The company's saying, in part, in a statement that we've determined that there was no shift in the vast majority of scores, adding, for those consumers that did experience a score shift, initial analysis indicates that only a small number of them may have received a different credit decision. Look, if you are part of that small number, you don't, it doesn't feel small to you, Jake. So look, the company's pointing out that the, it's a small percentage. It wasn't the vast majority. But again, if it was your credit score, you don't feel great about it.
1: No, I would think not. So so what is the solution for the potentially millions of Americans who are right now paying higher interest rates or may have been denied loans because of these mistakes.
5: So if you think you were impacted, you have to do a bit of self Advocacy here. I called around. And so the first thing to think about is did you actually apply for a loan in that time period? If you did, then you have to pull all three credit reports. Uh, You can go to a website like annualcreditreport.com and then look at the Equifax report and look if there were any hard inquiries. If so, you might have to reach out to those lenders and look for any anomalies and point them to this information and hopefully try to self advocate, as I said. But, Jake, uh, unfortunately, we know that rates are on average, much higher than they were in that time period. So it really complicates the, the effort if you feel like an, a decision was made wrongfully.
1: And Rahel, new data shows that Americans are piling up credit card debt as they struggle to keep up with inflation. The Fed, of course, raising rates again, which means these credit card bills are probably going to cost even more.
5: Yeah, credit card rates have really uh, spiked this year. And we know, according to this new research from the New York Fed, uh, that credit card debt has jumped about 13 percent for the second quarter compared to the same time a year ago. Jake, that is the highest yearly jump in about 20 years. Uh, So there is that, certainly enough to make you pay attention. The positive news, however, in the report is that uh, delinquencies are still very low. So that's some positive news. And also the report suggesting that consumer balance sheets are still strong.
1: All right, Rahel Solomon, thanks so much, appreciate it. Coming up, a snag from cinema. The Arizona Democratic senator revealing what she wants out of that major climate and tax bill that Democrats are hoping to score a big win with. New details coming up. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a 12-year-old girl kidnapped, drugged, tied up. She breaks free by chewing through her restraints. And what police found at her alleged captor's home? is horrific. We'll tell you the story. Plus, new polls giving a glimmer of hope to Democrats for the fall midterms. But will it be enough for them to hold on to the Senate? We're going to break it all down with our numbers wizard. And leading this hour, President Biden better get some fresh pens. He's got some new laws to sign. The PACT Act to help veterans exposed to burn pits and the CHIPS Act are just two big bipartisan accomplishments for the administration this week. But can these wins counteract The criticism and defeat and the high inflation. We're going to start with CNN's M.J. Lee at the White House. She's tracking both the wins and losses of the Biden administration this week.
13: The mission was a success.
20: Gas prices are coming down.
13: We've got 217 yes votes for the ship's bill. The House has passed
21: it. President Biden celebrating a series of victories and positive headlines in recent days. A year and a half into his first term, the president, who is still isolating in the White House residence with a rebound case of COVID.
13: I'm feeling much better than I sound.
21: Touting some of the most consequential achievements of his presidency so far. On Monday night, the surprise announcement of the killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri, one of the masterminds of the September 11th attacks.
13: My fellow Americans, on Saturday, at my direction, the United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan, that killed the emir of al-Qaeda.
21: And next week, the White House preparing to celebrate two bipartisan legislative victories. On Monday, Biden expected to sign into law a bill that would expand health care benefits for veterans exposed to toxic burn pits. The issue of personal significance for the president, who has said he believes the brain cancer that claimed the life of his late son, Beau, could have been caused by exposure to burn pits. On Tuesday, the president scheduled to sign into law the so-called CHIPS Act, which would boost semiconductor production in the U.S. and pass through Congress with Republican support.
13: I know it sure and hell thrilled me. And it thrilled everybody around this, this this White House.
21: White House officials in recent weeks also optimistic about gradually falling gas prices. We're now seeing 50 days into what remains the fastest decline in gas prices in over a decade. And hopeful that a surprise deal struck between Senators Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin in a bill called the Inflation Reduction Act will ultimately get the support of Kirsten Sinema, the last Democratic Senate holdout, and result in unprecedented investments in fighting climate change.
13: Pass it for the American people. Pass it for America.
21: Still, a number of significant challenges continuing to plague the administration. High inflation remains a stubborn problem with the majority of Americans saying they do not approve of Biden's handling of the economy and inflation. A national shortage of baby formula prompted by recalls and the shutdown of a major formula plant dating back to February, drawing criticism about the White House's failure to act with speed.
13: I don't think anyone anticipated the impact of the shutdown of one facility uh, in uh, uh, in the, the, the Abbott facility.
21: Public health experts ringing alarm bells about the spread of monkeypox.
15: We made a lot of the same mistakes that we made with COVID.
21: And following the Supreme Court's historic decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, the administration criticized by some for lacking urgency. And of course, the White House continues to deal with the fallout from the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, earlier today, we saw President Biden signing the second executive order on this front uh, since this historic decision. And the executive order today would in part support women who now need to travel out of state to get abortion services and other health care services, uh, though it is very clear that the White House is still figuring out the details of how exactly they would execute this. But Jake, there's no question that this is an issue that this White House hopes will continue to energize voters heading into the midterms. They believe that exactly what they saw last night in Kansas. Jake. All right,
1: M.J. Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. An issue that is still dodging, the dogging the White House, the fallout from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, the Chinese government lashing out, continuing to lash out, launching a series of unprecedented live-fire military drills around the island and warning that those who, quote, play with fire will perish, unquote. In addition to meeting... With the self-governing island's president earlier today, Pelosi delivered a strong message of support for Taiwan's democracy and Taiwan's security. In direct defiance of the Chinese government's repeated warnings and threats, as CNN's Will Ripley reports from Taiwan's capital city of Taipei, the visit by Pelosi is complicating Washington's already strained relationship with Beijing.
20: In almost any other capital... The armored convoy for U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi may not get a second glance. But here, in Taipei, on the diplomatically isolated island of Taiwan, a visit like this hasn't happened in 25 years. When Pelosi's political career began, protests like this were not allowed in Taiwan. Pelosi witnessed Taiwan's stunning transition from dictatorship to democracy. Democracy under duress, claimed but never controlled by Beijing's communist rulers. The Chinese military escalating cross-strait tensions. Military drills encircling Taiwan, some just miles from shore, condemned by Taiwan. A sea and air blockade. Pelosi's political gamble, her historic visit to the self-governing island, preceded by days of drama. Fiery threats from China ignored. Warnings from the Pentagon. Even President Biden rushed off.
13: The military thinks it's not a good idea right now.
20: Silence and secrecy. Until the moment Pelosi's plane touched down in Taipei. A dramatic entrance, three hours late, avoiding the heavily militarized South China Sea. Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen rolling out the red carpet for one of America's most powerful politicians, awarding Pelosi Taiwan's highest civilian honor. Having lunch with leaders of TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, the world leader in chips crucial to cutting-edge tech made in Taiwan. At Parliament in Taipei, Pelosi's defiant speech defending democracy in Taiwan.
16: We will not abandon our commitment to Taiwan, and we are proud of our enduring friendship.
20: Friendship has a time limit in the fast-paced political world. Less than 24 hours in Taiwan— Pelosi managed to cement her legacy, win rare bipartisan praise, and infuriate the Chinese military. Live fire drills began lighting up the seas around Taiwan within hours of Pelosi's triumphant departure. And those live fire drills are expected to continue in the coming days. It raises the question, Jake did taiwan gain more uh in terms of legitimacy by having nancy pelosi there or did they lose in terms of their relationship with beijing and now these provocations seem to be getting more and more intense uh, we're hearing now that an unprecedented number of chinese warplanes planes crossed the median line that's the line in the middle of the taiwan strait that china has never recognized but it's a line uh that's kind of if you cross that line you're basically inching very close to territorial airspace of Taiwan. And uh, this is a provocation, a level of provocation that Taiwan says they hadn't seen, at least since they began reporting information uh, more than two years ago, Jay. All right, Will Ripley in Taiwan, thank you so much. Joining us now, Congressman Mike Turner of
1: Ohio. He's the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee and also a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. You've said you think it's important that Thank Pelosi God. travel to Taiwan despite the pressure from the Chinese government and discouraging words from the Biden administration. Why is it important?
18: Well, you know, you've seen most recently from Nancy Pelosi this um, you know, a, this world of travel that focuses on this issue, as she described in her Washington Post op-ed, of democracy against authoritarian regimes where she went to Ukraine, uh, met with Zelensky in Kyiv. Uh, now she's gone to Taiwan uh, in both, uh, she's called out Russia and and China aggressors and and self uh, identified, um, you know, ad- adversity to the United States from both of them. Uh, what we're seeing though here is 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 a Pelosi even with criticism from the White House of taking these steps to do so. What I'm hopeful is that this is going to be an opportunity that when she comes back to Washington, we might be able to have a bipartisan. Uh, initiative to, to put, to restore some of the cuts to defense spending that Pelosi's been leading in the House, to look at ways in which we can strengthen our military. She made some pretty strong statements in that Washington Post op-ed about coming to the defense of Taiwan. I think it's time now for us to have a bipartisan initiative in the House to give the military what they need in case we are in a situation of a conflict with either Russia or China and our allies.
1: So in the Senate, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, they're considering legislation that would provide Taiwan with nearly $4.5 billion Dollars in security assistance over the next four years or would also classify Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally. Is is that something you would support? And and how does that impact the one China principle, which is a principle the United States, you know, adheres to, which is that Taiwan is part of
18: China? Right. And as you know, that comes out of Jimmy Carter's uh, policies from, from his era. I think we certainly are in that situation. Where, especially with we have China's aggressiveness, its its threats to our country, uh, its threats to uh, Taiwan and and others, its modernization of its nuclear weapons programs, what it's doing and investing and expanding its military, its militarization of space, that we need to take a a relook at. How do we address the issue of, of China now as an aggressor state, as an authoritarian regime that threatens democracy? So these are all possibilities for us to do. I think number one, though, I mean, the, under Pelosi's house, uh, they just put a $70 billion cut in uh, the, uh, the U.S. defense budget and also cut uh, some of the modernizations for our nuclear weapons that were planned, not expanding our nuclear weapons capabilities as China is doing, where they're massively expanding their, their nuclear weapons capabilities, but just even modernizing what we currently have, we need to make certain we focus on our military because the, these uh, threats from Russia and China, and to our adversaries, um, they're looking at what we're doing. We need to we need to make certain that we strengthen ourselves.
1: I want to get your reaction to something. Former Democratic senator and U.S. ambassador to China under Obama, Max Baucus, told me yesterday. Take a listen.
6: They may decide, contrary to U.S. Uh, treaties, to ch- uh, China. Uh, where we've asked China not to help Russia in Ukraine, they may decide, oh, what the heck, you can't depend upon uh, U.S. anymore, so we might start helping Russia. The basic
1: argument, and we've heard that from people at the Biden administration too, is that China has been mostly neutral uh, in the war of Russia against Ukraine, despite calls from Zelensky and others to oppose Russia, but poking uh, an, a finger in the eye of China uh, could cause China to support Russia much, much more than they have.
18: Well, I think China's response on Russia has been largely because they didn't expect, nor did Russia, that there would be a unified worldwide outcry uh, to the invasion of Ukraine and to the atrocities that are occurring there. I don't think China is doing us any favor in in this just because we we believe that Russia's aggressor and and of course, um you know are supporting Ukraine in this. If China was really looking at how they could have you know leveraged the United States, they would denuclearize North Korea, which they're not doing at all, and they have certainly the power and the authority to to do. Um, that's something certainly is a direct threat to the United States. And and if they wanted to show that they you know, could be a partner, then certainly that's a good place for them to have started.
1: So you released a statement applauding the success uh, of the drone strike uh, that Biden ordered that killed uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Um, but you also said that the strike in Kabul reveals the U.S.'s failure to address rising threats in Afghanistan because al-Zawahiri uh, uh, felt comfortable enough to be in downtown Kabul. The Biden administration would say in response that, "Hey, this strike proves that we can wage war against terrorists without American troops on the ground." What, what would you say to that?
18: Well, this strike, where we, where this one individual that is is targeted, where there's the intelligence community does a you know a holistic triage of where is this person, locates them, and has the ability to reach out and and touch them, is a capability that we've always had in our counterterrorism strategy, but the What the president claimed he was going to have with his haphazard withdrawal from Afghanistan was what he called over the horizon, which was actually supposed to be an ability to to degrade terrorist organizations' ability to operate in Afghanistan and come to the level of being a threat to the United States. Taking out one man is not that over the horizon capability. Uh, What the administration has failed to do is recognize Al Qaeda is there. Al Qaeda was there when the president made the statement that they were gone. Um, and they have yet to provide to Congress, what, what is their plan? How are they going to ensure that terrorist organizations that we know are there are not going to grow and grow in their threats uh, to the United States? And I think that's where the president now needs to focus, um, is how do we ensure uh, that with the resources that we have, uh, that uh, that the White House targets actually terrorist organizations and groups to degrade their capabilities.
1: Lastly, sir, I just want to ask, um, I know you disagree with a lot that Speaker Pelosi and, and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and President Biden uh, are pushing forward. But I couldn't help but notice in the last year, there have really been a number of very big, consequential, bipartisan bills. You've supported some of them. The, there's the infrastructure bill, the the PACT Act to help veterans, uh, the CHIPS bill, uh, the gun safety bill. In fact, I think you did you vote for all four of those? It's possible you did. I didn't
18: vote for the infrastructure bill.
1: Okay, but you, but you voted for three of the four. Um, no. We're seeing Congress working. Um, and again, I know you disagree with a lot that the Democrats are doing, but that's something to celebrate, I think.
18: Well, yes, but I, I, you know, something that, you, there does need to be a, a look here just a little bit further, and that is take the CHIPS Act, for example. Uh, that is a bill that should have had much more wider bipartisan support. But unfortunately, on the House side and on the Senate side, it, it became a partisan football. And when it came out of the House, it wasn't even able to be a a bipartisan vote at all. And when it came back, you know, we we could have been in a situation where if they're really working across the aisle that we could have had much greater support. Now, the the gun bill itself is something that, as you know, uh, came out of a bipartisan group working in the Senate, not an initiative from the White House, bipartisan group and then gained uh, broader support when it was first voted on in the, in the House. Again, it was much more partisan. Then it came back as a bipartisan bill. I think what people need to know is that, that every day there really is bipartisan work that's happening in the House. There certainly is um, certainly a, a partisan flavor uh, that we all see on, on television, but there is bipartisan work that be, that's being done. It, there does need to be more of it, uh, and that does require that people talk to each other and people work together.
1: All right. Congressman Mike Turner, thank you so much. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. Coming up, she's breaking her silence. Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema weighs in on the Democrats' economic proposal. Will she tank the deal, which will not be so bipartisan? Then, the CDC is about to issue some major changes to its COVID guidance including what schools should do. What is going what are they going to say? What are they going to recommend? That's ahead. Just in our politics lead, Senator Kirsten Cinema from Arizona, the key holdout on the Democrats' economic and climate change package, is now making her own demands to the tune of 14 billion dollars. CNN's Manu Raju is live on Capitol Hill for us. Manu, uh, what does Senator Cinema
9: want? Well, she has been concerned about taxes for some time. That had been an issue in which she had actually scuttled provisions in the president's Build Back Better plan to raise corporate income tax rates and personal income tax rates and has raised concerns about that privately. On this provision, this proposal does not have those Taxes, but it has two other taxes. One to set a corporate minimum tax of 15% on big corporations, as well as dealing with the issue of so-called carried interest, which is a tax that would impact hedge fund managers as well as private equity. She wants that carried interest carried interest provision out of this proposal. That would cost about, raise about $14 billion for the Democrats' package here to help pay for their big proposal. Also this uh, issue of dealing with the corporate minimum tax would generate much more revenue to pay for everything from climate change proposals, energy proposals, as well as extending health care subsidies under the Affordable Care Act. She had a private call with business groups yesterday who are lobbying her hard to try to change that specific proposal, the corporate minimum tax. And she asked this group, according to one the attendees what, about whether this language was good or bad or suggested perhaps it could be changed. And that attendee, the chair of Arizona, Chamber of Commerce president, uh, told us it gave me hope that she's willing to open this up and maybe make it better. Now, previously, cinema has been supportive of the corporate minimum tax, but there is some hope among the business groups and Republicans that the lobbying against her right now over this provision could be enough for her to actually pressure the leadership to change this proposal, it back some more, but she still, Jake, has not spoken publicly about this. She indicated earlier today she is waiting. She's Her office is saying that she will not make her position known until the Senate parliamentarian makes a decision about what proposals can be added in the budget process, which would allow this bill to be approved along straight party lines, circumventing a Republican filibuster, but to approve this, Jake, that means all 50 Democrats need to be on board, including Kirsten Cinema, and she remains the one holdout here is Democrats and Republicans privately lobbying her, and she has yet to tip her hand on how she will vote.
1: All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Tearful testimony, why a cybersecurity official choked up before lawmakers today when talking about a huge threat to the American election process. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a new Monmouth poll suggests that Democrats could could be gaining ground on the so-called generic ballot. That means pollsters ask voters, which party would you vote for if the vote for Congress were taking place today? Democrats have gained a few points on Republicans. Compared to June, it's still within the margin of error. And we should note, traditionally, Democrats need to actually be up six to ten points in the generic ballot to not have an awful night on election night. CNN senior data reporter Harry Enson joins us now live. Harry, is there any hope for Democrats in November that it will not be a massive red wave? So, you know, most of the time when we talk about Congress, we've been talking about the House. And this is the
15: chance of chamber control in 2023 based on the betting odds. And you can see in the House, look at this, Republicans have an 85 percent chance of gaining control. Democrats just down at 15 percent. But today I really want to focus in on the Senate because we really haven't spoken about it too much. And look at the betting odds here. Look at this. Fifty one percent chance Republicans have control. Forty nine percent that Democrats have control. That, my friends, is e. Then, which I can't quite spell. Nope, I got the room. And the question that I have is whether or not we should be shocked that the Senate and House end up in different hands after the election. And this is take a look at the House and Senate in midterms since 1946. The same party gained seats in both 14 times. But the party gained one party gained in one but not the other. That has actually happened a few times. It's happened five times, including in 2018. So it shouldn't be shocking if the Democrats, in fact, lose the House, but actually do hold on to the United States Senate, Jake.
1: And take walk us through the battlegrounds of Georgia and Pennsylvania.
15: Yeah. So why is it that Democrats might have a chance at... Holding on to the Senate, but losing in the House. And I think these polls in both Georgia and Pennsylvania will give you an idea. So here's a poll from Georgia. Raphael Warnock, the sitting United States Senator at 46 percent. Herschel Walker at 42 percent. Now, why is that? Take a look at the net favorability ratings. that 's a favorable minus the unfavorable. Look at Raphael Warnock. not exactly well liked at plus one, but look at Herschel Walker. minus five points. Republicans have been nominating bad candidates across the spectrum according to the voters. Georgia is one example of that. Pennsylvania is another one. Look at this poll. John Fetterman, the Democratic candidate, 47%. Oz, Dr. Oz, 36%. An 11-point advantage. What's going on here? The net favorability rating. Look at Fetterman. Plus 15 points. Oz, minus 20 points. Well underwater, Jake.
1: That's fascinating. Republicans have been hoping to run on a referendum against President Biden, his low approval rating the high uh, inflation numbers, do you think that will work? It may not. It may
15: not. Because take a look here. Have a favorable opinion, and this is our last CNN poll, of only Joe Biden, 36 percent, only the Republican Party, 33 percent. Look at this neither category. 29 percent have a, a favorable opinion of neither. And here is where it all comes together. The choice for Congress overall in our last CNN poll, look at that, Jake, it was tied. Hold a favorable view of only Joe Biden, which is the plurality of folks. Democrats, look here. Plus 93. Hold a favorable view of only the GOP. It's plus, it's plus 95. But take a look here. Hold a favorable view of neither or both. The GOP is up only seven points, Jake. Only seven points. You put it all together, Joe Biden may not be liked. But if this turns into a choice election, which it may very well, it could be trouble for Republicans.
1: All right. Harry Enten, thank you so much. Uh, Let's discuss. uh, Scott, I know you are bullish on Republicans' chances in both the House and Senate. Um, Do you think it's possible the Democrats will not have as bad uh, a midterm election as is being forecast in general? I'm bullish on the House. I I do
19: think the Senate's a different thing. And when we talk about the generic ballot, I really do think you have to separate the chambers. I mean, I think it's a a lot that Republicans are going to win the House. Uh, But these Senate races all are individual races. They take on the co- uh, quality and character of the candidates more than the congressional races do sometimes, and Republicans do have some challenges out there, and uh, and it's obviously 50-50. You only need to pick up one, uh, but it's not a, it's not a foregone conclusion. Which one? Senate.
1: Which which Senate candidates concern you? Republicans. Well, I candidates. mean, when we started this cycle, uh,
19: everybody was thinking Georgia and Arizona were going to be the top two pickup targets, and I think we've moved on now to Nevada and Nevada and uh, you know, maybe New Hampshire. I mean, so that's not to say. The candidates in Arizona and Georgia couldn't win, uh, but things have just developed a little bit differently. So, uh, And then, obviously, Oz has got uh, issues in Pennsylvania, according to the image polling we've seen. And uh, even Ohio, I think, is going to take some serious resources, although that state is a, a pretty red and pro-Trump state. So, you know, this is not an easy map in the Senate, whereas in the House, I just— It would be shocking to me if Republicans couldn't win the House if Biden's sitting in the 30s.
1: And and I want to bring something up because, uh, Paul, Harry talked about Biden's unpopularity and we're seeing it pop up in some of these primary races. Uh, House Democrats Carolyn Maloney and Gerald Nadler have been redistricted into the same district and they're now running against each other. Some other candidates, too. Maloney is doing some serious cleanup today. She was asked at a debate last night um, if she would support President Biden uh, if he runs in 2024. Take a listen. Too early to say it. Doesn't serve the purpose of the Democratic Party to to deal with that until after the midterms.
21: Ms. Maloney. I don't believe he's running for reelection.
1: Now, we should just note, I mean, Maloney changed her tune, saying if Biden runs for re-election, she'll support him. But that is not an enthusiastic endorsement from either Maloney or Jerry Nadler, both of right. whom are. I mean, that is about as Democratic a district as you can get. It's
11: an easy question. The answer is yes. Yes. He's my party's president. He's doing a good job. He runs, I'm for him.
1: But what does it tell you that these two won't even that?
11: they're not that? very talented politicians. They're, they're, <laughs> they've been to Congress a long time, but I'm sorry, but that's like falling off a log. That, that's just, it, that's really dumb. They're nice people, they're smart people. But they just uh, that moment, their brains just froze. This is not, this should not be a difficult
20: question.
1: There are two House Democrats right. in Minnesota, right? Dean right. Phillips and, and, and I forget the other one, uh, both of whom have now said, it's time for a new generation. Of leaders.
3: Right, right. Which is which is what I thought was really interesting with the third candidate on that stage with Maloney and Nadler. He's actually the young one in the race. And when he was asked the question, he just said what you what you said the others should have done, which is yes. But um, And he
1: accused the other two of ageism.
3: Which is just, <laughs> um, he very did. Morning Joe, I think he accused him of ageism. Very <laughs> fascinating dynamic. But I, I do think, um, kind of going back to the broader question of uh, President Biden's popularity, I do think that so much of his unpopularity ratings come from discontent from democrats which Mm -hmm. you're sort of seeing reflected in examples like that primary debate last night so whatever the administration can do right now to just nudge those numbers up a little bit you know obviously they're enthusiastic about the gas prices dropping for the last 50 days there's a lot of legislative achievements on the horizon if that gets the the enthusiasm going a little bit more for democrats i think the white house would be happy
1: and laura let's talk about what happened in, in kansas voters resoundingly defeated the message A measure, rather, that was designed to lead to further abortion restrictions, if not an outright ban. Mm -hmm. The turnout was astounding. More than 908,000 votes cast in August just on this amendment that eclipses primary turns out in 2020. Primary turns out in 2016. And in 2018, it even uh, beats the 2010 general election turnout. Um, This is a huge turnout from Kansans. And they were all saying, we don't want an abortion
10: ban. Right. No, this is a big deal. And it looks like this coalition of people that came together, right? Women in the suburbs, uh, their registration increased uh, recently, as well as the fact that Young voters really got involved, students got involved. And also it's the way I think that the No campaign formed their messaging, which was that a number of ads, if you looked at them that ran, framed this as a government mandate and framed it as similar to somewhat the way President Biden has framed it, which is uh, trying to get involved in the privacy of your home. And it appears to have been very successful.
1: Yeah, the the framing was very key because it was about intrusion and the government telling you what to do with your body. Um, Jill Filipovic, uh, who's a a pro-choice writer, uh, in her newsletter today, she argues that this tactic uh, will run counter to what many moderate Democrats want to do, but they can win. Democrats can win on the issue of abortion instead of running away from it. What, what do you think?
11: Well, she's right they can win. She's wrong that moderates are, are worried about it. They're enthusiastic about doing exactly what Jill wrote about in her newsletter. The, the, the midterm elections almost always are a brake pedal. And in a president's first term, it's a brake pedal against the president this may break that. This may be a brake pedal instead against Republican extremism. When you hear about that 10-year-old child in Ohio who would be forced to carry her rapist baby, that's extreme. When you see the Republican Party in Idaho pass a resolution calling for a ban on abortion, even in the case of rape, incest, and in the case of a threat to the woman's life, that's extreme. When you see these election deniers, that's extreme. So moderates, Progressives, they can they can join together on this and say the Republicans are too extreme and ask the voters for a brake pedal, not against Joe, but against the extremism. It happened once in my lifetime, and that was 1998, and Clinton was president, Newt Gingrich was going too far on the Hill, and against all history, Democrats actually gained seats that year. What do you think? I think the question on the Kansas
19: ballot was indecipherable. If you read the ballot language, I read it like five times before we walked out here, and I couldn't figure
1: out, I mean, you know, and I'm, I'm a pro-lifer. I couldn't figure out but what But it was very on. clear to voters, though. I, I mean, it was, it was advertised as to, as sure. to how I, I to vote. I think the
19: default position for people on constitutional amendments is to vote no and, and unless they can clearly decipher what's going on. Now, I do think it's true that there are some people who are pro-life, uh, that want to make sure, and they would describe themselves as being pro-life, but they want to make sure that there are reasonable exceptions, rape, incest, and life of the mother. And if presented with a question that is framed to them as though it's a total ban and you wouldn't get those exceptions, they may vote you know, against something like that referendum because they believe in, in the reasonable exceptions. And so I do think it's going to take some time for this to settle into some kind of equilibrium out there. This is the first whack at it in Kansas. There are other referendums and other races coming up, and there will be other legislative moves coming up over the next you know, eighteen to twenty-four months. It's going to take some time, but Republicans are going to have to find a political balance between uh, an extreme position, which would say no exceptions, uh, and in a, in a position that gets you a long way down the road of what you want, but understanding the political reality of, of this issue.
1: I, I, and I've heard a lot of uh, Republicans privately express uh, concern. I wish the Mississippi had just stuck with that fifteen-week ban instead of going for the complete. Uh ban are the are you hearing that as well?
3: Right. I think that's why Chief Justice John Roberts tried to carve out sort of that compromise within among the with the other justices on the Supreme Court that would uphold Mississippi but not completely overturn row. I think the one, uh, I think kind of what Republicans are looking to now in terms of the no- November midterms is betting on the fact that voters this fall aren't necessarily going to vote on just abortion. And I think that's the challenge ahead for Democrats, being able to connect that enthusiasm for abortion rights to their candidates. I think that's a lot easier to do, perhaps for governor's races in Pennsylvania. I think that's something to watch, but a little harder to do for congressional races, but certainly Democrats are strategizing on how to do that right now.
1: And it's only August, who knows what's going to happen? An alien invasion from the <laughs> Alpha Centauri. I mean, at this point, who knows? Thanks, one and all, for being here. Coming up, they were once neighbors, now they're enemies. What it is like in a Ukrainian town that borders Belarus. Stay with us. In our worldly powerful Russian airstrikes rocked the southern Ukrainian city of Mykolaiv today. The city's mayor said rescue operations were underway after a fire broke out in the city and a supermarket was destroyed. To the north, near the border with Belarus, Ukrainians are reeling after months of rocket attacks. They tell Jason's Carol, CNN's Jason Carroll it's a betrayal because they know the attacks are coming from the territory of neighbors who they once called friends.
7: It is hard for Svitlana Slivka not to tear up when she's asked what it is like to live so close to the border of Belarus. Whenever she thinks about it, she thinks of her son who is fighting in the war. She says, I live from call to call, therefore it is a very painful topic. Slivka works in the only store in the tiny Ukrainian village of located just two miles from Belarus. Just last week, the Ukrainian military says Russia launched a rocket attack aimed at northern towns and villages in Ukraine. Rockets launched from Belarusian soil, Flying right over small villages like this one. This video taken from another rocket attack a few months ago. These sights and sounds now all too common here. Georgi Sokolenko recorded it one night on his phone. He says it is very difficult. First, you worry about your family, your relatives, your country. We decided we will defend, but you can't fight against artillery with machine guns. Sokolenko showed us damage a strike caused after rockets hit his home. But he points out it's not just property damage. It's also many long-standing relationships between Ukrainians and Belarusians. Belarus, seen as a key ally to Russia... This Ukrainian soldier patrols the border between the two countries. He was on duty the night in February when the war started, and he says armed drones were launched by Russians in Belarus. He says before the war there were friendly relations between Ukraine and the Republic of Belarus. At the moment, we do not maintain any relations. He carefully showed us an area just a stone's throw from the border, now mined. On the 28th, we saw missiles flying from that direction, he says. This bridge that once connected the two countries now destroyed by the Ukrainian military to prevent Russia from entering Ukraine this way again. It is a symbol for how people like Slivka now feel about some of the Belarusians they once called friends. She says, we expected such an attack from Putin, but we did not expect this from the Belarusians. It's just betrayal. It's a stab in the back that no one expected. They are worse than Russia. And, Jake, as you can see and hear there, the feelings of betrayal run very deep. A lot of those who live in these border communities remember uh, when the war started, when Russian troops crossed that border, marched right into their very small villages. The feeling there is that long after the war is over, those feelings of betrayal will likely remain.
1: Jake? Jason Carroll and Keeve, thank you so much for that. New concerns about monkeypox patients being stigmatized. CNN has learned some are even being turned away when they try to get their blood drawn. The response from the labs next. In our health lead, we're hearing concerns that monkeypox patients are being stigmatized. This after some technicians at two major U.S. commercial labs refused, based on ignorant fears, to draw blood from patients who may have had the virus. This, as the monkeypox outbreak continues to spread, with more than 6,000 cases confirmed in the United States. Globally, the count is more than 25,000 cases in more than 80 countries. Health experts note that the most vulnerable to contracting the virus are men who have multiple male sexual partners. Let's bring in CNN's Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, explain what's going on at these commercial labs.
16: So, Jake, we've spoken with folks at LabCorp and Quest, and they say yes, many of our phlebotomists are not drawing blood. From monkeypox patients, it's unclear whether the refusal is by the phlebotomists themselves or what direction the company is giving them. But the end of the day, it is stigmatizing. And many doctors and ethicists are saying that patients are being stigmatized. And they point out, look, the CDC gives precautions. They tell healthcare workers, take these precautions, whether you're working with monkeypox patients or patients who have other infections. So let's take a listen to David Harvey. He represents sexual health clinics in the United States.
11: The fact that this is happening is an echo of the earliest days of HIV. We, I thought, had come a lot further. This is a grave dereliction of duty.
16: So not only is this stigmatizing to patients, as you said, Jake, this outbreak has been mostly among men who have sex with men, but it also slows things down. When phlebotomists won't take blood from these patients, it's a problem. Now, you don't test for monkeypox with blood. That's done by swabbing the lesions that are on the patient's body. But it is standard practice to take blood because you need to make sure that there's not some other infection and that it really is monkeypox. So this is happening at a time, this slowdown is happening at a time when monkeypox uh, cases Are growing dramatically. Let's take a look. Yesterday, the number of cases was about uh, 6,300. A week ago, it was more like 3,500. That's an increase of about 80% in just one week. So we asked Quest and LabCorp for their comments, and Quest had this to say. They say, we want to ensure every patient has access to the testing they need while also fostering a safe environment for our employees and all of our patients. At LabCorp, they say, some of our phlebotomists have been scared appropriately of it, of monkeypox. And so we're trying to come up with an evidence-based policy that is compliant with occupational safety rules and regulations to make sure that we protect our workforce. Again, the CDC points out, look, we should be cautious about any infectious agent. That's why we give guidelines. Jake?
1: Elizabeth, uh, meanwhile, uh, on the issue of COVID, CNN has learned that the CDC is expected to update its guidance on COVID and ease some restrictions in the coming days. Tell us more.
16: Yes, first on CNN, we're finding out that soon, perhaps even this week, the CDC is going to going to announce an easing of some restrictions that have really become pretty commonplace in this country. We are hearing that they are going to remove the six feet social distancing recommendation, that they're not going to be recommending screening in most circumstances, like the screening that we've seen in schools. Also, they'll be easing quarantine rules for those not up to date on their vaccines. Also, and this one is sort of a little bit different, they'll be recommending masking for high Risk people in 80% of U.S. counties. So really focusing on the people who are high risk. Jake?
1: Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Appreciate Thanks. it. Coming up, a 12-year-old girl kidnapped, tied up, drugged. Thankfully, she escaped. We'll tell you the story. A horrific story out of Alabama in our national lead now, where a 12-year-old girl who was assaulted and kept in a drugged state from alcohol managed to escape captivity and she led authorities to a gruesome discovery. Two decomposed bodies have been found Monday inside a home where she had been held. A 37-year-old man has been arrested on numerous charges. CNN's Amra Walker is covering this horrifying case. Amra, tell us more about how this young girl escaped.
17: Yeah, a lot of disturbing details that we are learning tonight, Jake. So this 12-year-old girl in Tallapoose County, Alabama, she was tied by her wrists. To bedposts for approximately a week. She was given alcohol, as you said, to be subdued, even physically assaulted by the suspect. This is according to court documents. But what's really remarkable is that she was able to chew off those restraints and even breaking off her braces to make her escape. And that is when she was found wandering in a rural area there in East Central Alabama. A motorist was concerned enough to make a phone call to authorities, and that is what led to police arresting 37-year-old Jose Pascal Reyes on Tuesday, the day after she escaped. And here's what the Tallapoosa County Sheriff had to say about her harrowing ordeal. Listen.
13: It's horrendous to to have a crime scene of this nature and, and also a, a 12-year-old uh, juvenile to deal with it. She's a hero. Uh, and it is one of those things that we want to get into to later uh, where we uh, gave our medical attention and uh, she has being she's safe now. Uh, and so we want to keep her that way.
17: Now, during the course of the investigation, authorities also discovered two decomposing bodies inside the suspect's home. We just got some new court documents, and it identifies these two bodies. The first one being identified as Sandra Vasquez Seja. Uh, the documents say that she was reportedly smothered to death with a pillow after she was kidnapped by Reyes. A second body, the, it was not identified by name, but we do understand it to be a boy that is under 14 years old. He was reportedly beaten to death uh, by Reyes, according to these documents. And also, the bodies cut into small pieces to hide evidence. So a lot of shocking uh, details here. Reyes now facing capital murder charges, along with corpse abuse charges. So, Jake, the question is now, uh, how uh, are these victims related or connected to each other um, and to the suspect? Jake.
1: Awful story. Emeril Walker, thank you so much. Turning to our sports lead now, one of the most recognizable voices in baseball falls silent. Hi, everybody,
8: and a very pleasant good evening to you, wherever you may be. Pull up a chair as the Dodgers have finally come home.
1: That voice, as any Dodger fan knows, belonged to legendary announcer Vin Scully, who died yesterday at the age of 94. Scully started calling Dodgers games back when they played in Brooklyn. And for decades after they moved to Los Angeles, 67 seasons in all. He signed off as a regular broadcaster in 2016. Vince Gully said his trademark was to call a play as quickly and as accurately as he possibly could and then shut up and listen to the roar of the crowd. May his memory be a blessing. You can follow me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read them. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcast. It's just sitting right there, A gift for you. Our coverage now continues with one Pamela Brown, right next door in Wolf Blitzer's
0: Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.